0: We're going to the Old Testament, and we'll be in First Samuel chapter 10, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. By there, is there. brian has got me here. Awesome. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Let us pray. Dear God, thank you, Lord, so much to gather in your house. We gather here, and there's people gathered across the country and across the world as we come to worship you on your day. So I pray that you be with us this morning as we open your word, and we just see and continue to discover how great and awesome and powerful God that you are. We love you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Man, I gotta calm down after singing that song. So, or just stay jacked up? I don't know which way. Um, so, I was I was kind of hoping Miss Mary wouldn't be here this morning because she does. She's not gonna like my opening, so I'll preface with that. My favorite ride in Carowinds, growing up, was this roller coaster called the Hurler. It was at Carowinds. It was at Carowinds amusement park. And it was a Wayne's World roller coaster, and it was called the Hurler. And at the time, it was one of those roller coasters that was, you know, super fast. It actually, felt like, it actually felt like 51. You know, when we first moved here, we always said, we're the first drive after the third belly flop. Because there's those three hills right in a row before my house. And the kids, the first time we came here, like, oh, what was that? And then it was funny every time after that, because always one of the four had to pee. And it was like, one of them, all, all, three of them were like, let's go faster. And one of them were like, slow down, dad, I got to go to the bathroom, right? But I feel like this week has been that ride, right? That has been that ride this week. And um, I've watched way too much news this week, just like most of you probably have. And whether you feel like the last four years you've wanted to hurl or the next four years you want to hurl, this message is for you today, which means that it's for all of us. All right. So we're going to talk about the title of the message is called the first king. We're going to look at the first king of Israel, why they asked for it, the consequences of it, and what God said about it and the hand that we have in it today. So we, of course, live in the United States of America. It is known as a democracy where we have the opportunity to vote. Democracy is a system of government by the whole population ...or the eligible members of state, typically through elected representatives... ...which is the process that we just went through. So that is a democracy. A monarchy A monarchy is a political system based upon the undivided sovereignty or rule of a single person. A single person. And a theocracy is a form of government in which God or a deity is recognized as the supreme civil ruler... The gods or deities' laws being interpreted by the ecclesiastical authorities. I know that's a fancy definition. But we have a democracy, and there's other forms of government, but we have a democracy, a monarchy, and a theocracy that I want to show and point to the differences of today. So we are in 1 Samuel chapter 10. We're going to flip back just a little bit. So if you could flip back one page or two pages, depending on the font of your text in your Bible, to Psalm, first Samuel, excuse me, first Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. So the people of Israel wanted a king. They wanted a king to rule over the land, but it wasn't the first time that they had wanted a king. So, um, actually, excuse me, let's go back a little bit further. Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8, verse 22. Judges chapter 8, verses 22. I love the sound of that flipping. Sounds good. Judges chapter 8 verses 22, it says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. It's the first time that the Israelites wanted a king. They wanted a king. They wanted to make Gideon king. And he said no. No. The Lord will rule over you. And not far after that, right down in uh, chapter 9 of Judges, it didn't take them long to what? Ask again. It's kind of like a child that wants something. He goes from one parent to the other parent until he gets what he wants. Thankfully, me and my wife talk a lot. She texts me a lot too, which is good because I stay up to date. That way I'm not behind the times by 5 o'clock. We stay, stay up to date. The latest occurrences... In Judges chapter 9, it says, now, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, Now Amalek, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, Which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. So for a second time, the Israelites asked for a king, and they didn't get one. They asked for a king, but they didn't get one. And now that takes us back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 9. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have instead rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So the third time, they've asked for the king. And the third time, God says, okay. God says, okay. So let's look at why the Israelites were asking for a king. And we're going to start in that passage that we just read, and we're actually going to go backwards just a little bit. So why did they request a king? In verse 7 of chapter 8 here in 1 Samuel, it says, Again, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have rejected you. The people of Israel were not satisfied with God's method of providing leadership through these series of judges. They weren't satisfied. They didn't like it. And so what did they do? They had a small protest meeting. Bam, here's the proposal, right? So they weren't satisfied with what God was doing. And I think it's kind of all these three things are similar to kind of what's going on today. We're not happy with their leadership And thankfully, in democracy, we have a voice uh, with our vote. So they were not satisfied with the present form of government. Verse 5, and this is a big one. Verse 5, it says, And he said to them, Behold, you're the sons, do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all of the nations. Like all of the nations. The Israelites wanted to be like every other nation." They wanted to be like everybody else. And this really stood out to me this week for sure because they wanted to be like everybody else, but God did not put them there to be like everyone else. In Exodus 19, 5, it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you, being the people of Israel, shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you, the people of Israel, shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that shall speak to the people of Israel. God was telling them there that they were their chosen people and treasured possession. They were not supposed to be like everybody else. God had called them to be different than other nations, they were called to be superior to other nations, and they were called to be a lesson to all the people around them who didn't serve a king, but they served a God, our Almighty Father and Creator. They served Him. But they suffered from what we call today as the grass is greener on the other side. Right? I was actually surprised as I was studying this week, this is now a syndrome. Grass is greener on the other side, syndrome. Check it out. Right? We kind of blow it off. Like, yeah, grass is greener. Yep, it's a little better. Right? But it's actually a syndrome. Grass is greener syndrome prevents you from acknowledging what you have currently have and appreciating it. The inability to be grateful for what you have is only exasperated by the fact that you constantly, you're constantly looking ahead to what you believe will be better. And it comes from a spirit of ingratitude is where it comes from, right? So I'm not going to go into the grass is greener syndrome, but you can actually look it up and see some of the symptoms of it and ways to help with the treatment of it. A lot of answers are in here. But you can look at it from a secular point of view. But those answers come from right here, which I think is awesome. So they wanted to be like the other nations. That was the second reason they requested a king. And the third reason they requested a king, or actually kind of what resulted from it, is because they had a committee meeting and not a prayer meeting. You probably didn't catch it, but I thought it was pretty neat. What's it say in chapter 8, verse 4? It says, then all the elders of Israel gathered together. They gathered together. Now, in the workplace, I don't like meetings. I don't like meetings at all. Most of you probably don't like meetings. The smiles on your faces tell me, yes, most of you don't like meetings. Right? Okay? So there's several funny quotes with this, and I relate to them. To get something done, a committee should consist of no more than three people, two of who are absent. (laughs) Right? Okay? A committee is a group that keeps minutes and loses hours. If Columbus had an advisory committee, he'd probably still be at the dock, right? He would still be at the dock. Now, meetings have their place. But meetings, I'm a firm believer that meetings need to have a set agenda, a set goal, and bam, 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 and let's get back to work, right? Meetings are critical here. But the Israelites, they didn't have a prayer meeting. They had just a committee meeting. If they would have got together and really talked about themselves and what they were doing and who they were following and the bigger picture and prayed about it, I think that they would have come to a different realization. Charles Spurgeon says the purpose of a prayer meeting are many, but to encourage discouraged people. Were there discouraged Israelites? Yes, there were. They could have been encouraged in a prayer meeting. Prayer meeting, a second use, is appointed. This is the appointed place to receive power. When we pray and we speak and we connect to the Holy Spirit through prayer, we are empowered and strengthened by His presence. And there are several other positive outcomes of a prayer meeting which I don't think the Israelites had. They just had a committee meeting. Everybody jumped on board the bandwagon, and then they said, We want a king, and they came to Samuel and said, Give me a king. So these three reasons they asked for a king... And there's a quote here I want to share with you because all too often in our lives, we do these same three things. We protest, we complain about what we don't like, we join the bandwagon, right, in a a committee type uh, scapegoat of it, right? And then because we always feel the grass is greener on the other side. I would say that, yes, I'm preaching to myself in some of these things. We all fall victim to some of these things, but we have to be um, strong to make sure we don't do that. Listen to this quote. I apologize, I did not write down the author's name. It says, Alas, how many once bright Christians have been spoiled, though wanting to be like the people of the world around, even as did Israel in demanding a human king. And how insidious is the temptation to lean on that which is seen and human instead of resting on our invisible God. It is a temptation to which we are all prone, But to yield to it invites a harvest of regrets. A harvest of regrets. When we choose something that's not in God's will for our lives. And this shouldn't be us. So we have to look at these reasons they asked for a king and then apply them to our lives. So we said after the third time, Jesus said what to a king? He said, okay. Okay, I'm going to give you one. But then he gives them a warning about it. So still in the 8th chapter of Samuel, we'll read verse 10. Start at verse 10. Now, I'd actually actually like to ask Morgan and Lily to come up for me real quick. Lily and Morgan, they're my scorekeepers. So just in case you, know, you, you can't quite keep score, I want, to, I want you to keep score for two words. Okay? Two words. So Morgan, you've got the word takes. And Lily, you come over here and you've got the word best. Okay, you got the word best, and you got the word takes. Okay, so anytime you hear the word takes, now if you want to mark it, you can mark it too. But in this next passage, I want you to read. Now, this is the what Samuel tells the people of Israel that living under a king would be like. Here we go. What word you got? Takes. What word you got? Best. Okay, very good. You sure. Okay. So Samuel told all of the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and some to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots." He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to His servants." He will take the tenth of your garon and your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and he shall be your slaves. And that day you will cry out because of your king who you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. The king takes what? A lot best two okay thank you very much i didn't want anybody to lose count All right? he will take he will take the king will take dave ramsey if you ever watched him he says it like it is pretty straightforward a lot and he said he just votes for the candidate that takes the least amount of money he doesn't think too highly of politics in general, but he just says he, take, he chooses whoever takes the least amount of his money, right? And right here we see from Scripture that God tells us this is what living like a king will be like, that they take, take, and they take. And they often take the best of what we have, right? When we first moved here, I moved, uh, one of the guys that worked with me, his name was Brad. Uh, favorite place to go eat was Olive Garden. I like Olive Garden? I like Olive Garden. Like an Olive Garden and gluten-free is not a good combination, by the way. Um, really like Olive Garden. And they brought him a cold cup of coffee. Now, some people might like my coffee, but it, they brought him a cold cup of coffee. Now, Brad, this is so funny, because Brad is a... Uh, he was a member of the Olive Garden uh, Rewards Member Program, right? And Brad's just a funny guy anyway. But he told me this. I don't think he really said it. He goes... You brought me a cold cup of coffee. I am an Olive Garden reward member. I want warm coffee. I want hot coffee. I am not a platinum Olive Garden rewards member because I get cold coffee. I want hot coffee. Kings want the best, right? Oh, y'all yeah, be your king, and you can keep your best, right? That's not how it's going to work. But did the Israelites listen to him? No. They didn't listen to him. They told him what it was going to be like. But he didn't. Right? And then in 1 Samuel eight 18, I've already read it again, but this is the second warning that Samuel gives. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. God told them that they would be disappointed in their king. God told him, "You will be disappointed in your king." Who'd they get? They got Saul. The next, two, the next two chapters are about Saul. Now he had some good attributes, right? He was courageous, He was generous. He has a striking appearance. I've never seen a picture of him. that's what the texture, no, the texture. The text describes. OK? Right. But we also know that his leadership abilities didn't measure up to his physical appearance. He was impulsive. He over, often overstepped his bounds. He was extremely jealous, especially of David. And he disobeyed God on several occasions. He disobeyed the word and will of God. And the people were what? Disappointed. Just like God said. 1 Samuel, 18 through, 1 Samuel 8, 18 through 20, it says But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No. But there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations. Again, I want to be like everyone else. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now that's a little hint right there, right? They weren't thinking about everyday life. They just wanted someone to represent them in, in battle. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city go. So God gave him a king. So let's flip over back to chapter 10 where our main passage, where we started our first scripture at. First Samuel chapter 10. So God said, okay, here it comes. Right? He reassures them here in our passage in chapter 10 verse 17 that look, I delivered you out of Egypt. I fed you. I guided you. I led you away from the Egyptians. Every kingdom that was oppressing you. I took care of it for you. I took care of it for you. But you rejected me. Okay. It's kind of like they, had, they were suffering also, not from grasses green on the other side, but also the syndrome of, I don't know if it's official syndrome, but what have you done for me lately? Right? They were suffering from what have you done for me lately? Even though they forgot who fed them last week. Right? So, they give him a king. So in chapter 10, verse 25. Chapter 10, 1 Samuel, chapter, verse 25. It says, Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people of the way, each to his own home. Samuel also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present but he held his peace. This is so strikingly similar to today. I mean, I hope you see it, because I see it. No matter who the ruler is, right? No matter who the ruler is, there will be people that support him. There will be courageous people, men of valor, Men and women of valor that support him, right? Great courage in the face of danger. But there will also be men that despise him and give him no present, right? I see that. So even at the time of the first king, there was dissension. Remember, I thought that there was a committee meeting a few few chapters ago that said everybody said, give us a king. And what did God do? They gave him a king. And then shortly after that, were they all happy? You would think they they got what they asked for, but they weren't. They weren't happy with it. So that's big there. That's big. You have men of valor versus worthless fellows. And the the small another catchphrase um, of encouragement today, no matter uh, which way you voted, is that people need to make sure that we're part of the solution instead of the problem. I watched a couple of articles this week about, well, how do you talk to people about politics? And the number one rule was that you put people before politics. People. How can I help this person? What is this issue that they're struggling with? How can I help them with that? I don't care what this policy or this legislature says on page 50,432. How do I need to treat them by what the Word of God says? People before politics. Politics. So they went from, and I started out, I shared three different types of government. But if you realize, they just went from a theocracy to a monarchy, right? They made that transition from those two forms of government. They rejected God's rule and wanted to separate from God. But there's a problem with wanting to separate from God. Turn with me to the New Testament. John chapter 15. John chapter 15. I need my scorekeepers back up here, please. Should have got a dry race board. <laughs> so scorekeepers. All right. John chapter 15. And we're going to read a very common passage, but we're going to read this. John chapter fifteen verses one through eleven. We're going to read this passage. Morgan, you've got the word abide. Lily, you've got the word love. All right. Now just to be clear. Abide, okay? Because um, not word we often use a lot, but abide to remain in. Right? We remain fixed or we remain stable in. That's what abide means. Okay. All right. Here we go. John chapter fifteen. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Each branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. Then it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is nothing. Oh, excuse me. Thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But this my Father is glorified, that that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As my Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as, don't laugh, David, get me trucked up. Just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that, you may, that my joy may be, be in you and that your joy may be full. Abide. How many? Ten. Ten. Love. Five. Five. Very good. Thank you. I think that's the last time we got to come up abide you stay connected to god you stay connected to christ and what is a result of that connection and that result of that connection of staying in christ is love for other people connected to christ connected to love connected to other people if we're apart from christ we simply shrivel up and die it's easy to prove It's easy for me to prove. People always say, say the facts. Well, say the facts, let's go right to the person. Let's go right to you. It's easy to prove that we shrivel up and die apart from Christ. If you listen to the news for fun. Okay, see, I just proved it, right? If you listen to the news for too long, do you feel happy or sad? Sad. They'll put in those few segments there. Like, here's what's going wrong for 55 minutes, and then the last five minutes they'll say something that's going good, right? But if we watch those, the news, no matter what channel, you don't feel happy. You start to shrivel. You start to die. But if you would take that same hour of watching the local news and you would read your scripture for one hour, how do you feel? How do you feel? Right? Right? Point proven. All right. There's a stark contrast. Brother Brian, did you get the, that little table? you show that table? That's fine. That's fine. Very good. Familiar with the seven deadly sins. Seven deadly sins. I'm not going to ask you to name them, but here you go. pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony and lust. If you're apart from Christ, you will suffer from those seven things. It is a fact and a certainty but there's a counter to those that are found in the Bible, and they are right here, these lively virtues. And you may have heard the opposite of the seven deadly sins, but the lively virtues, right? You have pride on one side, but then it's countered with humility. You have envy on one side, but then it's countered with admiration for others. You have anger on one side, but then it's countered with forgiveness. You have sloth on one side, but then that's countered with energy and zeal. You have greed on one side, but that's countered with generosity. You have gluttony on one side, and that's countered with self-control. You have lust on one side, and that's countered with purity. And in Christ, we see how important these lively virtues are. We're right here in John chapter 15. I hope you see the, per- the importance of staying attached to Christ and staying attached to the Word of God because this is what happens And what God warns us about in John chapter 15, verses 18, which Joel is going to read for us. John chapter 15, verses starting at verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they would also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, They had not been guilty of their sin, but now they have seen and both hated me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Very good. Thank you. We will fall into the world. Everybody wants to be loved by the world. But there's a greater calling. (laughs) No one wants to have to fight and beg and, and do all that. Nobody wants to do that. But if the world loves you, it's hard to say that you're living for Christ. It's hard to say that. As Christ said that it would not be easy, he calls for us to go to work. Go to work. Go to work. Brother Dave Thomas said this week, he said there's no complacency. <clears throat> Chris. No complacency. How about cracked up when he said that this morning. There's no complacency in Christianity. Like that, so it's time to you know right. We got to stop worrying about how good we look. Right, we got to stop. No, do that. It's time to what? Roll up our sleeves because it's time to go to work. Now, the definition of complacency is a word that I've often took taken tooken. Look at that. i got the evil eye from the English teacher over there. Yeah, complacent on the dictionary, yes. But it's a word, a definition that I've often taken for granted. But the definition of complacency is is self-satisfaction, especially when it accompanies by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. Okay? I'm going to say it again. Self-satisfaction, especially when... It accompanies by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. Now, for me, it has a lot to do with safety at work. Safety is like the number one, you know, area where we grow complacent in what, in what we do, right? Because we have to, you know, and, and I work in manufacturing. Several other of you do as well, but you have to watch out for you know high voltage situations. Like, literally, high-voltage situations. You know, you have programs, lockout, tagout, right? And then, you know, mechanical injuries or, or the ones that, right, the, the slip, trips, and falls. You know, it's, it's the generic safety training. We can't grow complacency, complacent with those things in our lives. We can't ignore them or they will jump up and bite us, sometimes hard. And... We often struggle, the people that tend to get hurt most in the workplace are the ones that actually aren't the the operators or any entry-level positions. It's the ones that have been trained to work around the equipment. And they've worked around the equipment for 15 or 20 years. They actually pose a greater risk of getting hurt. Why? Because they grow complacent. They work around these dangers and they think, oh, it'll be okay. It won't get me. And then, boom! Boom! They take their eye off for just a second, and they got it. Just like in the world, we can't be complacent. Huff gave a great message last week about pro-life, all through life, all through life. Racial justices and equality for all, definition of marriage, definition of our family homes. We can't take our eyes off of those things and how the Bible tells us and calls us and what's right and how we should treat people, everyone. We can't take our eyes off of that definition or it'll come back in by us. A lot of people have said we're in this struggle, we're in this type of um, Injustices and situation because the church didn't speak up hundreds, 200 years ago. I believe that to be absolutely true. Absolutely true. And we're called to speak up today. We're called to roll up our sleeves and we are called to go out into the world boldly and proclaim Christ to the world that is so dark. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 1 verse 9. Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. Now, I said boldly, and I shared this Wednesday night, and I got a lot of giggles, but I'm going to say it again. In fifth grade, I ran for class president. I wanted longer recess, and I wanted cheaper lunches. Now, I don't even remember. I didn't have a platform. It was all just kind of different. You know, you're kind of learning about it, right? But I remember making little signs, the poster signs that said, vote boldly, Vote Coley, All right? Little cheesy little fifth grade signs, right? But the whole principle of that is to learn, right? It is to learn about government in the, in the school system. But I remember that, that slogan. It's so funny. I kept that uh, glittery tiger for many years because it was a cigar of tigers. And I, didn't. I think my mom probably made the tiger, but it was really pretty. But we have to go boldly. Let's look at this passage in Joshua chapter, uh, chapter one. It's starting in verse five. Verse 5, it says, um, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this place to inherit the land that I swore to your fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to have the right or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but shall meditate on it day and night, so that it may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Amen. Amen. Now, of course, he's talking here about Joshua leading the people into the promised land. But there's several comparisons for us today. In verse 5, I love it. It says what? I will never leave you or forsake you. Follower in Christ, once you accept him into your heart, he will never leave you or forsake you. In verse 6, Joshua is called to lead the people into the promised land. And when I read that, I see that I have one of that similar responsibility to do the same thing. As a follower of Christ, we should go boldly into the world and we should tell people about Christ because what? We lead them to a relationship that if they choose to accept it, they go where? To the promised land. To the promised land to spend eternity with Christ. We are called to lead people to the promised land. Verse 7 reminds us that we have to stay straight in alliance with the Word of God. Do not fear left or not, not veer left or veer right. Verse 8 tells us that we should put Scripture into our hearts, into our minds. And in verse 9, it reminds us again to be strong and courageous. It tells us in verse 6 to be strong and courageous. It tells us to be in verse 7, be strong and courageous. It tells us in verse 9 to be strong and courageous. Who was the emperor after Caesar Augustus? Anybody know One of the most popular rulers in the history of the world. Caesar Augustus. Who was the ruler after him? Tiberius. They get a little easier. Who was the president after Theodore Roosevelt? William Taft. Who was the president after John F. Kennedy? Johnson. Johnson. Getting closer. Biden or Trump? Which one matters the most? In 20 or 30 years, will you remember which one came after which? What's the name that's most important? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the most important name. He is the most important king that we can have in our lives. The most important one. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 It reminds us that the government shall be on the shoulders of Christ. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and evermore. When I read to uphold it with justice and righteousness, I don't want anybody, I don't want any man on that throne. I don't want a woman on that throne. I want Jesus Christ on that throne when He defines what justice is and what righteousness is. He is the only one that can do that. Revelation 19, 16, it says, On His robe, on the robe of Jesus, and on His thigh, His name is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 17, 14 says again, For He is Lord of lords and kings of kings. Those with Him are called and chosen of the faithful. 1 Timothy 6, 13-15, it says, I charge you in the presence of God to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time, He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Do you get the pattern here? Who should be our King? Jesus Christ. His name. Revelation 1, 5 through 6, it says, And the ruler, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and rulers of the king on the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Ever and ever. I watched a post election sermon by Dr. Tony Evans from three or, four years, three or four years ago. Great sermon. And I'm going to paraphrase this because I, I, I didn't write it down. I'm sorry. But the paraphrase was, and I think this is where a lot of people struggle, is that we should all respect the position of president. No matter who is in that office, we should always respect that person. We should respect them. We can disagree with them, but we should always respect the position because we should be respectful of the position, because we as followers of Christ represent Him, Christ, our King. If we don't handle ourselves the way that Christ would have handled Himself, then we are not a good representation of Christ. It's a very good sermon. Very good sermon. I want to close with one other illustration. It's in Matthew chapter 8. I know we've flipped a lot. we've stayed in God's word a lot, but all these thoughts just connect together, and I wanted to see it that is straight from God's word. Would you all agree? Matthew chapter 8 verse 23 is where we're going. Matthew chapter 8 verse 23. Would you all agree that we're in a storm? We're, we're in a storm, right? We are in a storm. Everybody knows that I like to fish. If you didn't know that, I do like to fish. I don't like jet skis. I don't like ski boats. If you have one, no bad feelings, that's okay. But why don't I like jet skis, and why don't I like ski boats? I have went skiing before and had a good time. Anybody know? I'm sitting here and I'm fishing. I'm sitting here fishing. And when a big ski boat goes by, what happens? Right? Whoever's fishing with him, like, hold on, waves are coming. Hold on. Right? Do you know the best way to take a wave in a small boat? Turn right into it, head on. Because if you shy away and you turn to the side, it's worse. But turn, head into it, and hit it head on, and you split the waves. It's still rough. But it's not as rough. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. Jesus calms the storm. It says, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and seas obey Him? Great passage. Awesome passage. The point I want you to take away to this is the disciples were in a storm. Who did they look to? They looked to Christ. They looked to Christ. They said, Who is this man? He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. And He's holding His hand out to all of us. And when those waves come and those storms come, no matter what they are, sure, there's political waves right now, but there's waves that we all face that are not political. right? But any storms that we face, He holds out His hand. And that boat's a-rocking. But He says, take my hand, take my hand to steady your life to steady your life. We have to move closer to Him. We move from the shifting sands of the sea to stand firmly on His mountains of majesty. Stand firm on those mountains. We're going to close, Brian, did you get that video to close with? And... Uh, it's called the King of Our Heart. King of Our Heart. And um, you can stand, you can sit, whatever, whatever you want to do. But with everything that's going on in your life, whether it is this political storm, whether it's this, you know, this health, this sickness, this pandemic, whatever it may be, is Christ the King of Your Heart? So let's listen to this song and just reflect on the message today.